Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, August 30th, 2021. We're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, a native trout fanatic. We're headed south this week to learn about the Gila trouts, and our guests are Trevor Luna and Jill Wick. Trevor is the project leader at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Mora National Fish Hatchery, and Jill is the Native Fish Program Manager with the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish. So welcome, you two. Great. Thanks for having us. So first things first, since we don't actually have fish in hand to look at, can one of you describe the colors of this fish? I've heard they're kind of beautiful. Maybe one of the most apt things that you'll hear when people talk about Gila trout is that they take their colors from the New Mexican sunset, which is kind of a artistic way of talking about them. But they're really kind of an iridescent colored fish with gold sides that kind of blends to a copper color near their operculum. And they've got small spots covering most of the entire fish above their lateral line. And on some of them, you'll see they can have sort of a salmon pink band around the lateral line. Some adults will be a little bit more colorful than others. Definitely some of the fish that we have in more of an artificial setting here in the hatchery aren't nearly as colorful as fish that we get in from the wild. Does that sound right to you, Jill? Yep. In terms of size, too, these guys are kind of on the smaller side of trout, right, just due to the habitats that they're located in? Yeah, it really depends, I, I think, on the size of the stream as to how big the fish get. So I've seen wild fish up to 15 inches. I think that's about the biggest one I've ever seen in the wild, but they're, they're pretty much found in smaller headwater streams. So that means that most of the time they're a little bit smaller and probably average around, I don't know, 10, 10 inches or so. Yeah. And, and in the hatchery, hatchery is definitely a different thing when they're not in their natural environment, we're feeding them all that they need and getting a complete diet and they've got, you know, ample resources you know, we'll get fish up as far as 20 inches. I think the state record somewhere around four pounds, eight ounces, or maybe there was one that's broken that since then. So our fish in the hatchery after they've gone through their whole process and, and being part of our broodstock program can get quite a lot larger here. So what drainage are these fish found in? Kind of what part of uh, New Mexico or New Mexico and Arizona can you find these and where do those streams flow into? Yeah, so they're native to both New Mexico and Arizona. So they're found in the Gila River drainage in New Mexico and Arizona, and then in Arizona in the Agua Fria and Verde River drainages. And so like they're mostly found in the headwaters. Obviously, this is New Mexico and Arizona, and it's a desert. And so the cold water is up in the mountains. And so they're mostly found in the, the headwater reaches of those drainages and in smaller streams. A lot of people, when they think about fish hatcheries, they're thinking about big stocking programs trying to put out fish for sport. But it's my understanding that the Mora Hatchery and the Gila Trout Program there is more for conservation and reintroducing these fish. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that, that's correct. The hatchery, when it was first established, was established as a hatchery and technology center. Part of the goal of the hatchery was going to be to do sport fish research, but then pretty quickly the hatchery targeted or keyed in on, on raising Gila trout starting in the early 2000s. Since then, yes, that, that's been the predominant focus of the hatchery. And so really what our goals here at the hatchery are is, is one, to maintain a viable broodstock program. And so that's kind of first and foremost to make sure that we've got, you know, a population of fish here that, that can reproduce. And so we work closely 
with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service geneticists to make sure that the breeding program that we have is genetically sound and that we're trying to avoid any bottlenecks possible. But then beyond that, we're working closely with, with Jill's office and also the state of Arizona to provide fish for recovery efforts. And then if we have anything in excess of those two you know, main goals of, of maintaining our brood stock and then recovery efforts and reintroducing fish, then we're able to take those excess and, and provide those for recreational opportunities. Can one of you give kind of a cliff's notes of what's happened to these fish through history where we need to have this kind of hatchery supplementation? Gila trout are very closely related to rainbow trout. Rainbow trout came down the Pacific coast and then up the Colorado River into New Mexico and Arizona and the headwaters, you know, millions of years ago. And that's how those fish are derived. And then fast forwarding a few hundred thousand years or so, you know, they're isolated in these headwater streams. And when Europeans colonized the area, they really kind of overfished them. There's a lot of anecdotal stuff out there from different surveys that were done by the military um, back in the late 1800s and early 1900s about going to fishing holes and people catching, you know, 50 fish in one day and taking them home and things like that. And so, you know, that combined with um, there's quite a bit of mining in the in this area and then, you know, cattle grazing and just other land management changes. They kind of went kaput. In the 1950s, when the species was first described, there were five populations remaining, five pure populations. All of our predecessors started moving fish all over. And so they were stocking rainbow trout and Yellowstone cutthroat trout in the upper Gila drainage. And so, you know, the existing populations were hybridized. It's kind of interesting, I think, because even that early as the 1950s, people realized the importance of preserving Gila trout and the Department of Game and Fish, New Mexico Game and Fish, established a fish hatchery, two different fish hatcheries to attempt to raise Gila trout. And those were unsuccessful. They weren't able to, to produce enough to stock out. And then they also stopped stocking rainbow trout in streams where there were Gila trout present. And so those five populations really did get preserved and are still in existence now. I was just going to say they were listed as endangered at one point, right? So they were, yeah, they were listed as endangered in uh, uh, in the original um, Endangered Species Act in 1973. And they were also listed in the precursor to the Endangered Species Act, which was in 1966. Yep. And what's their status today then? Yeah, they were listed initially as endangered. And then um, in, I want to say 2006, they were um, downlisted to threatened. In the downlisting, there is a special rule that allows for angling of Gila trout. So you can fish for Gila trout um, in, in certain locations in both Arizona and New Mexico. And both New Mexico and Arizona also have fish hatcheries that, that really just focus on producing fish for recreation, not for conservation. Yeah, I mean, fish are interesting because you want to maintain public interest. And I've seen this with some other species, too, that have been listed. And it's kind of unique to fish in a way, but that's how people connect with fish is through fishing. So it's kind of an interesting case study for sure. I've heard stories from people about these fires that came through and kind of put ash into the streams, kind of cleared things out and helped open things up for restoration and conservation of Gila trout. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah, fire is probably, wildfire and the effects of wildfire is probably the biggest threat to Gila trout currently. In the Southwest, we have kind of a unique fire system or fire season. Our, our fire season usually starts in around May, 
And then we get monsoon rains usually starting in July. And for the most part, those fires, you know, if they start in May or June, they burn until it starts raining. When it floods in the monsoon season, all of the ash and debris that's on the, that just burned on the landscape gets washed into the creek. And so there's been documented 70 times the amount of ammonium in the stream just as a result of that ash. And so those levels of ash in the water and debris result in complete fish kills. So a lot of times after a big fire, there are no fish left in the stream at all. And it's a result of that. It's not the fire itself burning, but it's the result of that flooding after the fire. And so we did have a fire in 2012 that burned about 300,000 acres in New Mexico, pretty much dead center on our gila trout populations. And at that time, we had 18 populations and we lost half of them Oof, wow. due to that fire. And we have recovered and we're, we have more than that now. Um, so we've, we had a really big rebound. And then the other thing, there's a little bit of a silver lining because sometimes streams that have non-native trout in them, like rainbows or brook trout or brown trout, the fish get killed out of those streams too. And we're able to just put Gila trout back in. And so that happened with that, that fire in 2012 as well. What Jill's describing with these fires, this is no small effort. I mean, this is wild country and I personally haven't, you know, gone into there to rescue, but Jill has. And I mean, I've seen the photos. I mean, we're talking helicopters to get these fish out, you know, mule teams uh, with panniers with, you know, specially designed tanks on the side with, you know, oxygen supplies, you know, huge manpower effort goes into trying to protect these fish, you know, during these fire events. Wow. That's yeah. impressive. So here at the hatchery, we maintain five different lineages of Gila trout. So these are, these are five different groups of fish that have been deemed genetically different from one another. And so we keep isolation systems at the facility so that we have the ability when there are these fire and rescue efforts. And we just had one last month, a couple months ago, to be able to get these fish in, hold them in isolation, let fires and monsoons pass, and then, you know, determine whether these fish can go straight back out into the wild. And if that's possible, then we can get them back out there. And if not, we can incorporate them into our genetic breeding program. In terms of angling, say somebody catches a Gila trout and wants to release it, what are some best practices to make sure that the fish is going to survive? I'm assuming the temperatures are fairly hot. Do you have any recommendations for folks that are fishing? Yeah, most of our catch and release streams have a limited season. It does get really hot here in the summer and water can be really low, especially in May and June. Those are probably the lowest time periods of water. Using obviously barbless hooks for catch and release is important. And then keeping keeping the fish wet, trying not to work, work them until they're exhausted and just getting them back in the water with as little handling as possible. Thankfully, you don't got to fight these. Uh, you don't got to play these <laughs> tiny fish all that much. I, I know I wouldn't think. Maybe some of the bigger hatchery ones that you guys put out. Our cycle is when we have these fish for breeding is, well, typically the best years to get them is in our three-year-old fish. And so that's when they're the most productive for the hatchery. So what we'll do is we'll we'll spawn them in year three. We'll, we'll try to spawn those fish again in year four. And then as they become five-year-old fish, we'll take those fish and return those into some angling waters. And so those are some of those opportunities where people can catch these world record fish. And, and one of them is the, the Aldo Leopold fishing derby that happens 
And we haven't had it for the past two years due to COVID, but that's in Lake Roberts, New Mexico. And so that's a great opportunity for folks to come see some of these larger fish that maybe get above that 12-inch range that you'd find them in their natural waters. So, and Guy, maybe you can speak to this too, since you... You caught one recently, but what's it like? Like, what is the environment like? Like, what do you expect to see if you're going to go angling for these fish? Yeah, I was basically, I was traveling to Phoenix for a conference and I had one day in New, uh, New Mexico. I thought, okay, it's a good chance to try and check off the Gila trout box of North American trout species that I've caught. And so I was looking on the map. New Mexico Game of Fish has some great maps. I had my little trailer that I was pulling behind me that I pulled with me all over the country. And I made it up and you get onto these forest service roads, which were actually really nice forest service roads. I, I didn't expect them to be so nice, but you get up in there. Eventually I had to drop the trailer to get into some of the rougher ones. And like this whole time I've been spending time down in the Southeast and you know, that's great. But getting up into the high desert, that's a place where I grew up and you can smell the willows, smell the streams. It was like a homecoming. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But getting up these little tiny winding roads and I get to this trailhead And I finally, it's like, okay, I had to go up one of these ones to try to get away from where people might otherwise normally fish and get back into there to try and catch something. So it was about a 40-minute hike in. I left at 7 p.m. This was Mineral Creek, I believe was the name of it. It was almost like I I could hardly find any pockets of water that I could imagine holding the trout. And this was in like mid to late July. But I, I just kept working downstream, and eventually there was like this little tiny you wouldn't call the pool in any other creek but in this stream mm-hmm. it was a pool and you just toss a little spinner in there or toss a little i caught one on a spinner and one on a little fake worm thing kind of like a squirmy wormy that you toss in there and just boom there was fish in there i picked up one fish about seven or eight inches it was exactly as Trevor was describing. It was this beautiful kind of pale golden color. It had these really fine spots all on the dorsal side of the fish above the lateral line. Just super fine, like almost like you couldn't hardly pick out individual ones. It was really a pretty looking fish. I fished a little bit longer, picked up a little par. It was a, a good time was had by all. Trout were caught. Uh, it was beautiful country. That is probably my favorite place. Um, Mineral Creek, I, it's probably my favorite place to go. For heel trout in New Mexico, there's a lot of different like kinds of fishing, I guess, that you can do. You know, there's places where you can drive up and get out of your, you know, your truck or your car and walk, you know, 100 feet and be able to fish for Gila trout. Most of the Gila trout populations are in more remote areas in the Gila wilderness. And so, you know, if you want a full experience of doing like a meal pack trip back into the wilderness to go catch a wild Gila trout, you can do something like that you know, depending on what you like to do, um, there's a lot of different places you can go and kind of different experiences you can have, but they're all beautiful, beautiful locations, gorgeous, huge canyons that these streams are in. You're up in the mountains. It's not what most people think of New Mexico at all. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It really is the land of enchantment. future of these fish, how do we go about making sure they're around for future generations? So our our conservation kind of strategy or recovery strategy is guided by a recovery plan that the Fish and Wildlife Service puts out, and it focuses on replicating the the five populations that were remaining, you know, when the species was described. And so the main threats at this point that we can really mitigate for is hybridization and competition with non-native species. And so those here in New Mexico are rainbow trout, brown trout, and brook trout. 
And so most of our work is removing those non-native trout from streams and then putting Gila trout back in. And we've recently completed a really big project in this place called Whitewater Creek. We finished the non-native trout removal, I think, two years ago. It took us about five years to get it completed. And now we've got Gila trout back in that stream. What is being done to make sure that those non-native fish don't get back in? Yeah, good question. So we build fish barriers. So we put up mostly concrete structures in places where we remove non-native fish from above that structure and we put heel trout above it. And anything that's down below that we don't want in that stream can't jump up and over that fish barrier. We also use waterfalls because there are a lot of waterfalls here. And so if there are waterfalls that are large enough to prevent fish from moving upstream, we use those in places of, you know, built structures. But most of the places where we're putting heel trout are within wilderness areas. So it's incredibly remote locations and we're restricted on, on what we can do in those places. We can't have any kind of mechanized equipment. Usually we're using horses and mules for transportation and for, you know, transporting all of our gear. We do sometimes get special exemptions to be able to use helicopters. But generally these these projects where we're removing non-native trout and putting helo trout back in are pretty long projects that take a lot of people and a lot of planning and a lot of effort. Yeah, and I'll piggyback on that to just emphasize how, you know, important that the work that Jill and, and her team and the folks over at New Mexico Game and Fish have done, I mean, especially with this whitewater project, I mean, it's it's one thing to be able to produce fish in a hatchery, but if we don't have anywhere to go with them that's that's suitable habitat, then then really our efforts are moot. And so being able to work together with Jill and her team and being able to provide some fish, I mean, that was a, that was a big win for everybody, I think. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. This was a really interesting conversation about Gila trout. And we hope everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montaguin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.